which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, or Hades, the American Standard Version says, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now that is the familiar story that all of us have heard and all of us have read. We refer to it as the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it is a story that draws the curtain back momentarily and allows us to have a glimpse of what lies beyond the grave. That is a subject about which every person here is interested. One reason we're interested is some of us have lost loved ones. We have already seen them as they have crossed over the great divide. And we're interested in knowing something about life after death because of the fact that we have loved ones who have undergone that transformation. But maybe for an even greater reason, we are interested in what occurs after death because we know that every one of us is going to die unless we are here when the Lord comes and even then there is going to be a transformation from this life into that life which is to come. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says, As it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. So we're all aware of death. We're conscious of death. And we don't know very much about it. Not a one of us has ever actually gone through that experience. Some have gone through what we call near-death experiences 
where that they have been on the very verge of death and yet they have come back and sometimes they return and tell us interesting stories about what they felt and what they sensed as they were very near unto death. But actually no one of our acquaintance has died and come back and told us anything about it. Not a one of us has had that experience and so we know it is out there, we know it lies before us and every person here is interested in knowing about what it is going to be like when we die. Now there are some things that God has not told us. And those things that God has not revealed, we simply do not know. But insofar as God has revealed it to us, we may search His Word, we may determine what He tells us, and we may learn whatever God has revealed about life beyond the grave. And I believe that God may have revealed more to us than we sometimes realize. And I want to deal with some of those aspects of our subject tonight. I want to begin, however, by dealing with a question that often rises when we read the text that I have read this evening. I have read, as I have said, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Very often I will have sometimes uh, the question raised, well, is that not a parable? Can we depend on that story of the rich man and Lazarus in order to reveal to us anything about life beyond the grave? After all, is that not just a story, an illustration, or a parable? So I want to deal with that for a few minutes first before we go into what the Bible says about life after death, yea, even five minutes after death. I do not believe that the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable. But before I get to that, I want to say that even if it were a parable, that would not nullify the teaching that is set out in this story. The word parable is quite an interesting word in itself. It comes from two Greek words put together, combined to make one word. One of the words is para, which means alongside of. The other is balo. And that word ought to be an easy word for all of us to remember because it is spelled B-A-L-L-O, almost like our English word ball. And the meaning of that word balo is to throw or to cast, the same way that we might do with a ball. So the Greek word for parable is almost like our English word, parabole. And the literal connotation of it is something that is thrown or cast alongside of something else. That is why in the parables Jesus very often said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto. And then he uh, gives the parable showing a likeness or a similarity to the kingdom of God. So a parable is an illustration. It is something that is put alongside of something else in order to clarify or to make plain. But bear this in mind, a parable is not the same as a fable. Now there are fables even in the Bible. One of the most famous, probably the most famous, is the story involving Abimelech, who was one of the judges of Israel, when it is said that all of the trees and the forests of uh, 
that time came together and elected a king, and they elected a bramble bush as a king. Well, we know that trees did not elect a king. We know that bushes and shrubs did not come together and elect a king. That is merely a fable that is told in the Bible for purposes of illustration to indicate that Abimelech was an unlikely person to become judge over Israel. And he was sometimes called the Bramble Bush King or the Bramble Bush Judge because that story about the Bramble Bush is told. Well, that is only a fable. And a fable is a perfectly uh, legitimate way for us to illustrate some divine truth, and yet we must recognize that a fable is not something that is true in and of itself. But I want to emphasize that a parable is not the same as a fable. A parable is something that either actually did happen, or it is something that is within the realm of possibility. And you look at every parable that was uttered by the Lord. He tells about a man that went forth to sow. And he sowed seed. And some fell on good ground. And some fell on ground that was not good. Is there anything impossible about that? No. Is there anything about that that could not come to pass? No. So a parable is something that is within the realm of possibility. And sometimes may have been an actual event. The Lord may at times have spoken parables based on something he actually had seen. And he used them for illustrative purposes, the same way we do today. Brother Jenkins might uh, tell a story here sometime about something that he actually saw or something that happened to him. And he uses that to illustrate a point that he wants to uh, put across. The mere fact that he uses that as an illustration does not mean that it could not have happened or did not happen or that it was beyond the realm of possibility. So I want to set out in the beginning tonight the definition of a parable so that we can understand at the very outset that even if the story of the rich man and Lazarus were a parable, that in itself would not nullify the teaching that is in that story about what occurs after this life is over. But I want to go a step further with that. I do not believe the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable. Simply because it does not have the characteristics of a parable. Number one, the verse does not say it is a parable. Now I know that not all parables are so identified, but some of them are. Some of them are introduced by a statement like this. The Lord spake unto them a parable, saying thus and so. So in the first place, you do not have any identification of this story as a parable. In the next place, I want you to notice how it begins. There was a certain rich man. And then the very next verse says, And there was a certain beggar. Now I grant that even that would not in and of itself suggest that this could not be a parable. But at least it is some evidence for us to consider. Number one, the text does not call it a parable. Number two, it begins by talking about the two main characters in the story. 
And in both cases, it introduces them by saying there was a certain rich man. There was a certain beggar. But now let's get even more specific. Notice that there are proper names that are signified in this account. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Now we know that a parable was given generally for purposes of illustration. The Lord uh, might have been trying to tell about the kingdom or about some other subject and he wanted to make it just as plain as possible. And so he would speak a parable to illustrate the particular point that he had under consideration. And so I raise this question, if this were merely an illustration, what would be illustrated by the use of a man's proper name? What would it illustrate to say there was a certain beggar and his name was Lazarus? But not only do you have a proper name here with regard to one of the characters in the story, but you also have proper names here regarding other figures that we know to have been historical figures. That is, they were people that actually lived. They're not merely uh, illustrations. They're not merely examples. They're not made up. They're not fabricated. They were real historical characters in biblical history. It is said, Father Abraham. Well, I know that Abraham was a real character in the Bible. Not only that, but in this story, we read about certain things that Abraham said. You know, when I read in the Bible that Abraham said something, and I know that he was a real person, and that he was, in fact, a historical character, if the Bible tells me that Abraham said something, that Abraham spoke, then I believe what the Bible says in that regard. Not only so, but Abraham said, they have Moses. Well, there's another real character, a historical figure. And even though he does not identify them by name, he says Moses and the prophets. They were also real people, actual characters. So for all of these reasons, I submit for your consideration that this is not a parable in the sense in which we ordinarily consider a parable. Even if it were a parable, it would not negate or nullify the teaching that is involved in the story as it is revealed. But there are too many things about this story that are unlike what we think of as a parable, merely as an illustration. This is a reference to an actual historical event in which the names of actual, historical, real people are involved. And so for that reason, is exceedingly helpful in helping us to understand something about life after death. One other point in this regard, and I'll leave this consideration. Although I have set out reasons why that I believe the teaching in here is reliable, that it is not merely an illustration, and that it is not, in fact, a parable. Just to underscore the point a little more emphatically, I want to say that every point I can find about life after death in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, I can also find in other passages in the Bible. In other words, 
even though I think we may utterly rely on every point that is set out in Luke 16, everything that we find in that story about life after death may be verified in other places in the Bible so that we are not entirely dependent just on what we find in Luke 16 about life even five minutes after death. I want to set out tonight about two or three characteristics of life after death. What will occur even within five minutes after death. I want to refer to it as it is found here in Luke 16. And then as I've indicated, I want to go to other verses and to show that it is a principle that is taught elsewhere as well in the Word of God. I want to begin by saying that within five minutes after we draw our last breath on this earth, we will be in a conscious existence in another world. I, I don't know where so many people have gotten the idea that when we die, we're unconscious. I know that there are certain materialistic denominational groups that teach that idea, they have the idea that when a man dies, he is asleep, he is unconscious, he does not know anything. But the Bible does not teach that. And I have discovered a number of members of the church that have that idea. Well, when you die, you're out there in the grave, you're asleep out there, you're unconscious there, you're not aware of anything, you won't know anything until you are resurrected from the dead. And I don't think the fact that some believe that is the result of a study they have made. I think it is because of a lack of study. They just never have thought about it. They never have actually investigated what the Bible says in this regard. And so they have just sort of slipped into the conclusion that when man dies, he is in an unconscious state. But I'm going to show tonight, and I believe very clearly, that the Bible does not teach that idea. In fact, the Word of God teaches very clearly that man is in a conscious existence within five minutes after he takes his last breath here upon this earth. Actually, I think I could call this five seconds after death. Or I could call it one hour after death. The real emphasis here is not on the particular time period, but what is being said is that immediately after death, not long, long years later after the body has been in the grave all those years, not at the time of the final resurrection. The point we're endeavoring to make by saying five minutes is to indicate that this is something that occurs immediately. This is something that occurs when one dies. Not at some point way down in the future, but within five minutes after death. One is in a conscious existence in another world. Well, let's notice that first right here in Luke 16. We've already seen there was a certain rich man, there was a certain beggar. And in the story that is revealed to us here, both of them died. I've always thought it was very interesting that when it talks about the beggar, Lazarus, it is said the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Doesn't say a word there about him being buried, does it? But you go down to the next verse and it says of the rich man that he died and was buried. I assume that Lazarus may have been buried. 
But the fact that it is not mentioned here indicates to me that it was not a big event. But when the rich man died, no doubt there was a funeral. No doubt there was a ceremony involved. No doubt there was a eulogy. People got up and said fine things about this very wealthy man that died. When Lazarus died, it appears to have received very little notice indeed because he was a very poor man who actually begged for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Then it is said that as both of them died, they went to different places. I'll use the word Hades here. I'm not going into a discussion of the difference in hell and Hades, but Hades is the word that is in the original Greek text. So we'll just refer to that instead of the word hell. In Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments. Now, here is a man that died, and he is immediately in a place of torment. And then it is said that he seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. That is to say, Lazarus was in the same place Abraham was and perhaps was leaning on Abraham and being comforted and consoled by Abraham and the rich man was able to perceive that. Now watch what he did. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. You cannot have torment without consciousness. So the rich man is in a conscious state and he is in a conscious state immediately after death. Not only that, but Abraham had died and Abraham is in a conscious state. Lazarus is not represented here as speaking, but obviously he was in a conscious state because the rich man said, Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish or I'm tormented in this flame. So right here in Luke 16, you have all of these in a conscious state immediately after death. Well, someone might say, now, wait, wait, wait just a minute. How do you know this is talking about immediately after death? How do we know that this is not a projection of what will occur at the time of the final resurrection? All right, we know that for two reasons. They're both very plain right here in the text. One of them is we know this is not talking about the end of the world and the final judgment because there were still people living back down on the earth. You know when the end of time comes and the Lord comes, this old earth is going to catch on fire. And we're going to be caught up together and meet the Lord in the air. There won't be people still living and moving around and carrying on their daily activities here on this earth. But the rich man said, I have five brethren send Lazarus to talk to them lest they come to this place of torment. So I know that this is not talking about the end of time. I know this is not talking about the final judgment. I know this is not talking about the general resurrection from the dead because at that time there will not still be people involved in their activities down here upon this earth. And the rich man says, I have five brethren back down there on the earth. There's a second reason I know this is immediately after death. 
Because the Lord has revealed something to us that occurred while the law of Moses was still in effect. Why? Well, the rich man said, send Lazarus to my five brethren. I don't want them to come here. And Abraham answered and said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Well, we know that Moses and the prophets uh, were in force up until the crucifixion of our Lord upon Calvary. We know that in Colossians 2 and verse 14 that when he died upon the cross, he took the law out of the way and nailed it to the cross. We know from Romans chapter 7 and verse 4 that we are dead to the law by the body or the death of Christ that we might be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead. So the whole Christian dispensation was yet to come when this event occurred that we read about in Luke 16. And therefore we know it's not talking about the end of the world. We know it's not talking about the final judgment. And we know it is not talking about the last grand general day of resurrection. But it is talking about an event that occurred while the law of Moses was still in effect. It is talking about something that occurred while men and women were still existing and living back down here on the earth. And so it is talking about something where men died and where they lifted up their eyes and they were in a conscious existence immediately after death or within five minutes after death because the world has not yet come to an end. So we can see right here in Luke 16 that they were conscious after death. But actually that's not the only place in the Bible that signifies that point. In Revelation chapter 6, down about verse 9, we read about the martyrs to the faith. That is those who had actually lost their lives because of their faithfulness unto the Lord. And in Revelation 6 and verse 9, we read about the opening of the fifth seal and about the souls of them that were under the altar. Now, let's get it. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9, when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, John, who did you see? John is still down here on the earth. He's writing the book of Revelation. This is not talking about the end of the world or the final judgment, not at all. John is telling us about what he saw while he was out yonder on the Isle of Patmos and something was revealed unto him. And what was it he saw? He said, the fifth seal was opened and I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. Who's he talking about? Martyrs. Well, if they were slain, they were dead. They had been killed. And so we're once again given a glimpse or a view of what it is like after death. And what was the condition of these that John saw? I saw the souls of them that were under the altar that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Look at verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell upon the earth? Oh, what a powerful verse that is. 
Because that's talking about people who died. It is talking about people who died before the end of time because John was still back down on the earth writing the book of Revelation. This is near the end of the first century. And uh, not only so, but it is talking about people that were in a conscious state in another world even though they had died. They weren't out in the grave. They were not out somewhere in a cemetery. They were not lying asleep under the ground. They were not in an unconscious existence somewhere. John said, I saw the souls of them who were slain for the word of God. And what were they doing? They were crying out saying, oh Lord, holy and true. How long before our blood is avenged upon them that dwell upon the earth. In verse 11 you have the answer given by the Lord. And white robes were given unto every one of them and it was said unto them that they should rest for yet a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Now you know that's plain and that's powerful. Here are people that had lost their lives for the cause of Christ and they're conscious in another world. They're crying out and saying, how long before our blood is avenged upon them that dwell upon the earth? And the answer comes back and says, there are more servants down there on the earth who are going to be killed even as you were. And so you wait and be patient and rest a little while until this occurs. So the Bible certainly emphatically teaches that one is alive and one is conscious in another world when this world is over. And even before the last great day of the resurrection because here were those that had been martyred for the cause of Christ uh, that John depicts in a conscious state at the time that he wrote the book of Revelation near the end of the first century. Now let me give you another one. I love to give this one just because it is so interesting. I hope it is to you as it is to me. In the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus had a discussion there with the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in a resurrection. And they wanted to entrap the Lord, and so they came to him and they said, well, a man was married and his wife died. But his wife had a, or rather the man died. But the man had a brother, so the wife married the brother. And that brother died. He had another brother, and so she married that brother. And there were seven brothers. And uh, in the story presented by the Sadducees, why this woman married all seven brothers. One died, she married another. One died, she married another. I think if I'd been one of those brothers, I'd have been a little reluctant. <laughs> a friend of mine said uh, one day not long ago, he said, you know, he said, I, I, I made a list of six pallbearers. And, and or eight pole bears, and he said five of them have died. And a mutual friend of ours who was on the list was standing there said, take my name off that list. <laughs> but anyway, the Sadducees were not sincere about it. They were not serious about it. They asked this story about the seven brothers because they did not believe in the resurrection. And they were asking this to make the idea of a resurrection look preposterous. They were saying to the Lord, well, she's married to one, he died, the married, she married another, and he died, and she married another, and he died, and so forth. And uh, she finally married all seven of them, and then they popped the question to the Lord. They said, now, whose shall she be in the resurrection? They didn't want to know who should be in the resurrection. They didn't believe there was a resurrection. 
They ask the question to make the idea of a resurrection look ridiculous. But the Lord, of course, knew how to deal with this, and he answered by saying, you do err, knowing neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, he said, there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage. So that's a very interesting thing right there that God tells us about life after death. But he goes on and he says something else here that the Pharisees, or rather the Sadducees, did not know how to answer. And it's what I want to cite to you tonight. As touching the resurrection of the dead, he said, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, now you probably read this verse, but maybe you hadn't really thought about all it involved. Now Jesus quotes this to them. He said, have you not read that spoken unto you by God, saying, this is Matthew 22 at verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now watch that. I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now watch his next statement. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now do you get the force of the argument that Jesus made against the Sadducees? This is powerful. Let's watch it carefully. I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Well, if I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, and God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, what conclusion irrefutably must follow from those premises? Well, it is obvious that if he says, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, and he is not the God of the dead, then of necessity, Abraham is not dead, but living. But in the physical sense, when Jesus spoke this in the first century during his personal ministry, Abraham had been physically dead for hundreds of years. So when you think about what Jesus said in Matthew 22, you know that man is conscious. Man is alive. Man is living after death. And this is before that end time, so it's not talking about being resurrected. What is resurrected? It is the body that is raised from the grave. The Spirit is not out there in that grave. And Jesus said, God is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob. But he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And there is no way under the shining sun of heaven to read what Jesus said in the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew that we've examined just now without coming to the realization that when men die in the physical sense, they are still alive and conscious in another world. At home in my library, Brother Jerry may have it here, I have an old debate book 
the Nickel-Bradley debate, conducted in 1906 at a place called Rule, Texas, R-U-L-E, I have no idea where that was, in which Brother C.R. Nickel, a faithful preacher of the gospel and a well-known debater of years ago, defended in debate the very thing that I am advocating to you tonight. And that is that man is alive and man is conscious after death. I don't know how that some of our brethren have sort of slipped away into the error that a man is out there in the grave asleep somewhere when he dies. It isn't so. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 says the dust that is the body, returneth unto the dust as it was, but the Spirit returneth unto God who gave it. The Spirit is not there. And I know that when someone dies, we weep at the coffin. And I do not criticize that. Because that fleshly form is the way we knew that person. That's how we recognized that person. But I've known the people to go out to the grave and throw themselves down on the grave. I had a friend that went to his father's grave and committed suicide right on his father's grave, shot himself and died right at his father's grave. And some people just seem to have the idea that that person they loved is down there in that grave. Oh, no. It is the fleshly form that is there. It is the physical body that is there. And the physical body shall be resurrected someday in a changed and glorified state. But the real person is not in that grave. That person is in a conscious existence in another world. Now, I'll not spend as much time on what else I want to say, so don't be too apprehensive about that, but I do want to mention two other things briefly. Not only will one be conscious within five minutes after death, but within five minutes after death there will be recognition of others. And again, I want to go first here to uh, Luke chapter 16 and to see how that we observe it in the text and then we'll see that it is manifested as well in other places. But in Luke 16, you remember that when the rich man died and Lazarus died and Lazarus uh, was comforted in Abraham's bosom that the rich man looked and saw them there and cried and said, Father Abraham, he knew him. Not only that, but he knew Lazarus. Because he said, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Later he said, send Lazarus back to my five brethren who are on the earth. So here is recognition after death. And by the way, I've answered Bible questions for many, many years, uh, 15 years at the open forum at the Pre-Dardeman Lectureship, and many, many times in gospel meetings and other occasions like this. And do you know I've had people ask me this question over and over and over again. Will we know one another in heaven? And my answer is always affirmative, yes. Bible teaches there is recognition after death. But I want to tell you a question that I have never been asked. All these years that I've traveled, all these years that I've conducted meetings, all these years that I've dealt with Bible questions, I have never had one single solitary soul ever ask me, will we know one another in hell? Nobody. Nobody's ever asked that. Maybe it's because nobody really plans to ever go to hell. 
But the Bible certainly teaches that there is recognition after death. And not only here in Luke 16, but as I indicated, every one of these points may be verified at other places in the Bible. Take, for example, the transfiguration scene that is found in the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew. There you remember that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they went up into a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun. His raiment was as white as the light. And Matthew 17 and verse 3 says, And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Well, both of them, or at least one of them, had died. Elijah had been taken. Moses had died. Now watch this. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What? Peter never saw Moses. Peter never saw Elijah. They lived and were gone long before Peter came upon the scene. But there was something about them at the Mount of Transfiguration, though they were no longer a part of this life, that was recognizable so that Peter was able to say, let us build three tabernacles here, one unto thee, one unto Moses, and one unto Elijah. And you remember how the voice of God Almighty thundered forth from the heavens above and said of Jesus, this is my my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. That is to say, you no longer hear Moses representing the law. You no longer hear Elijah representing the prophets. But it's stated in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And so that was corroborated upon the Transfiguration Mountain when God said of Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. Oh, what a great day that was. But what I want us to see is there was something recognizable about Moses, though he had been dead for many, many years. Now, that raises a question. How in the world could you know Moses? when you had never seen him in the body, and when at that time he was not even in his fleshly form? Well, I'll just answer that as plainly as I can. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how we recognize one another after death. But I, let me give you a point or two that might help, might help us follow that. Um, when I first moved to Memphis years ago, I was just a really a young preacher. We had an elder in the church there where I worked who, when I moved there, was 78 years of age. Now, you would think a young preacher in his 20s would not have very much in common with an elder in the church who was nearly 80, but that was one of the best influences I ever had in my whole life. I loved Brother W.A. Sanders, and I think about him often to this day. Brother Sanders died at 87. I conducted his funeral. It was one of the most difficult experiences of my life. I, I walked up to the pulpit. Brother Sanders' body lay there before me. And I stood there a long period of time before I could even utter the first word. I just was so overwhelmed by emotion at the loss of this wonderful elder in the church, one of the greatest men that I'd ever known. But I used to like to call Brother Sanders and tease him a little bit. And I'd call him up and disguise my voice, and he wouldn't know who it was. And so he decided that he would do that to me. 
And Brother Sanders had a very distinctive voice. For one thing, Brother Sanders had a habit of clearing his throat, and it wasn't one of those where you <clears throat> just do it this way. It was one of those where you kind of vocalize it. Brother Sanders would always clear his throat like this. <laughs> Brother Sanders called me up one day after I'd fooled him a time or two on the telephone, and I picked up the phone. I said, hello. That's before we had that device, you know, that tells you who's calling. I picked up the phone, I said, hello, and at the other end of the line, I heard a voice that says, I bet you don't know who this is. <laughs> Guess what? I did not have to see his physical form to know who he was. I didn't have to see what he looked like. I knew who he was over the telephone, though I did not have any view of him in sight whatsoever. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 36, people came to Paul and they said to him, uh, how shall the dead be raised? And then watch this part of their question. They said, And with what bodies shall they come? Well, that's a good question. I've always wondered about that myself. So here's what I wonder about. If I die when I'm 80 years of age, over yonder when the body is resurrected and I'm in the glorified state, will I look like I did when I was 80? Or will I look like I did when I was 20? And if I know people here today that... Uh, are in their 20s, and then I die, and they go on into their 80s, what would they look like then? Would they look like they did when I knew them in their 20s, or would they look the way they did when they died in their 80s? I don't know the answer to those questions. But here's what Paul said. When they came to him and said, How shall the dead be raised, and with what body shall they uh, come? Paul just answered and said, Thou fool, God giveth to each a body as pleaseth himself. You know, uh, sometimes I'm a little slow to catch things, but I think what Paul was saying there was, it's none of your business. God will take care of that. I don't know what our bodies are going to be like, but I know this. Abraham was recognizable. Lazarus was recognizable. The rich man was recognizable. At the transfiguration, I read that uh, Moses and Elijah were recognizable. There was something about them that was recognizable even after death. And yes, 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 I believe there's recognition after death, whether you're talking about heaven or hell. And that's one of the things that makes heaven more wonderful and one of the things that makes hell more unendurable. Now, I think about a man like Brother Sanders. I've already told you about him, elder in the church, good man, one of the best men I ever knew in my life. I've seen Brother Sanders. By the way, he was about six feet tall, never weighed more than 135 pounds in his life. So you can imagine how tall and thin he was. And he always carried a big Bible, and I can remember him holding that Bible up here when he'd teach his Bible class, and I've seen him quote entire chapters out of the Bible without ever opening that book. He was just so in love with the book, and he was such a great, wonderful, and magnificent Bible teacher. And if you were in Brother Sanders' class, he kept a roll. He'd pass that roll around, you had to sign it, and then he'd check to see who was there and who was absent. If you were absent, you got a little postcard in the mail from W.A. Sanders. And it would say something like this. He would say, Sunday, I looked back in our class and I saw an empty chair. And Brother Sanders would say, it looked so sad that I went back to that chair to see what was the matter. And it had your name on it. Let me ask you something. Could you get mad at somebody like that? No. No.
I had a man tell me one day. He said, if I go to heaven, he said, W.A. Sanders deserves a lot of the credit. Because this man had ceased coming to church, and he got those little cards from Brother Sanders. I looked for you Sunday, and I didn't see you anywhere. And I wondered what could be the matter. Hope to see you this Sunday. Sincerely yours, W.A. Sanders. <laughs> well, he said, I love that man so much. When I got a card like that, he said, I wanted to be there. And I tell that little illustration in order to make this point. Think how much richer heaven will be for a man like Brother W.A. Sanders to get there and to see this person and that person and the other person that you actually helped to come there. And you have actually increased the population of heaven because of the influence that you've exerted. Think about gospel preachers that have been out in these meetings year in and year out and have preached their hearts out to people and seen people come down the aisle, maybe one sometimes in a meeting, maybe 50 sometimes in a meeting, but someone is restored or somebody's baptized into Christ. And maybe sometimes it's just a young person, just a young person, but that person may grow up and be a father or a mother and have children, have a family. Others may be in heaven because of that. And you get to heaven and you see that person that you had a hand in their conversion. Don't you know that is going to make heaven even more wonderful? And I thought on the other hand, oh my, I feel just like the rich man. If I'm lost, I don't want any of my family to come there. You know, I've always been amazed at people who say, well, I, I, I don't want to be baptized into Christ because I have some relative or some loved one that never was baptized. And if I were baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, that might indicate that I thought they had not done what they ought to do, and I don't want to do that. Listen to me. If you've got somebody that has been lost, and probably all of us will have somebody they're not down there in torment saying, oh, I can't wait for John to come down here. I can't wait for Sue to come down here. They're like that rich man back there that said, please send somebody back and beg them not to come into this place of torment. We should not disobey God simply because somebody we love has died and maybe died unprepared to meet God. I'm willing to trust God in the judgment. I'm willing to let God make that decision. But I'm not going to stand back and refuse to obey God in doing know what I'm required to do just because somebody else died and went into eternity without doing everything that God required. This man begged back here for somebody to go to his brethren. He didn't want to see them again in hell. He didn't want to see them in torments. He didn't want them coming down there where he was. And if we are so unfortunate as to have lost any member of our family, I can assure you they're not down there just wishing that we would come and keep them company. They're urgently praying, just as the rich man did in the long ago, that we will not ever come into that place of torment. But I've had people say, well, if I if I knew people, I'd know so-and-so wasn't there and I couldn't be happy. That's why Revelation 21 and verse 4 says, God shall wipe away every tear. Well, I didn't think there'd be any tears. Well, apparently there might be some to begin with and the idea has occurred to me that it may be because we know that there are some that are lost, maybe even some that we love. But the fact of the matter is God is able to make that right because Revelation 21 and verse 4 says, God shall wipe away every tear. One last point. Not only will we be conscious within five minutes after death, not only will there be recognition after this life is over, but there will be memory. 
recollection. Look at it in Luke 16. You remember when uh, the rich man said, Father Abraham, have mercy, send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. The very next verse, Luke 16 and verse 25, Abraham began his reply with these words. But Abraham said, Son, remember. Remember. Remember what? Remember that in thy lifetime thou receivest thy good things and Lazarus and like matter evil things. This is a clear indication that one has memory when this life is over. Within five minutes after death, we'll recall what things were like back down here on the earth. And again, it is not only here in Luke 16. By the way, look at the rich man. He said, I have five brethren back down on the earth. He remembered. He remembered his family. He remembered his life back down on the earth. He knew what it was like. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. And send Lazarus that he may go back to my brethren who are back on the earth. He remembered his life back on the earth. And those uh, martyrs that we talked about a moment ago over in the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation, they remembered how they died. Because the question they asked in Revelation 6 verses 9 and 10 was, how long, O Lord, holy and true, before our blood is avenged upon them that dwell on the earth? They knew how they died, and they said, Lord, how long are you going to let that go on? How long are those persecutors going to be able to stand and to persecute the church of Almighty God? And not only could they remember their own death, but they could remember their brethren who were there because the answer given to them was that they should rest for yet a little while until their brethren should be killed as they were. They had recollection of what everything was like back down on the earth. And so I think one thing that you and I ought to bear in mind is this, that when we die, number one, we're conscious. Number two, there is recognition. And if, rec I forgot to say one thing about recognition. If recognition is great for those who are in heaven and they see those they help to come there, think how horrible recognition is in hell. I said a minute ago, if we had loved ones there, we wouldn't want them to come there. I can't think of anything worse in all the world than for me to go to hell and then to run to one of my children there. And, and memory would make it even worse. I, I'd hate to have one of my children raise the finger of accusation in my face and to say, Daddy, if it had not been for the poor, rotten example you set before me, I might not be in this place today. And then when we come to this matter about uh, memory, if, if, if the rich man could remember his life, he knew he had five brethren. If those martyrs in Revelation 6 could remember how they died, they could remember their brethren that were still back down on the earth. I ask you this question. Why couldn't we remember a service like this one tonight. I, I don't know any biblical reason why we couldn't. Why couldn't we remember an invitation where that some preacher pled with us from the depths of his heart, if you're not a Christian, why don't you come? Why don't you obey the gospel? Why don't you be baptized into Christ? Or if you're a child of God and you've wandered away, why don't you have the courage it takes to come back and say that you were wrong and be restored to the full work, faith, and fellowship of the church? Why couldn't we remember an invitation song echoing over and over and over in our minds, almost persuaded, 
almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail. Almost but lost. I'd hate to think about being lost. I'd hate to think about being in torment for all eternity and to have an invitation song echo over and over and over in my mind and remember occasions like this where that I had the opportunity to render obedience under the gospel of Christ and I failed, failed, failed to do so. That's why it's so important for us to study five minutes after death what it's going to be like when this life is over. Finally, we'll all know our everlasting destiny within five minutes after death. Now, that's the question all of you have had on your mind all evening. Well, if you know all this when you die, what use is the judgment? That's the main question that everybody raises. And what we need to bear in mind in that connection is that the judgment is not to tell us whether we're going to heaven or hell. Some of us already know that. Some of you sit right there. I had a man tell me one time. He said, if I died tonight, he said, I'd go to hell. Well, he wasn't dead, and he already knew where he was going. And there are some before they die that know they're not prepared to meet God. You, Although I know some will be surprised because many shall say in that day, Lord, did we not uh, cast out demons in thy name and in thy name do many mighty works? And Jesus will say, depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Matthew 7, uh, 21 to 23. But a lot of people know their destiny now, so you don't necessarily have to die and go to the judgment in order to discover your destiny. The purpose of the day of judgment is to tell us why. Remember all those verses that says, we'll give an account of every deed done while in the body? I might go up there and say, well, Lord, I think you ought to save me. And he'll say, what about this? And what about this? And what about that? I'll understand why if I'm lost. Won't be any mistake about it. God doesn't make any mistakes. And on the other hand, if God says, enter into the joys of thy Lord, I'll understand why, because you'll say, inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these my brethren, you did it unto me. The judgment day is not merely to tell people their everlasting destiny. It is to show why that we are saved or lost so that there'll be no miscarriages of justice. No one will fail to understand what occurs, and it will be the time when the sentence is passed when one is either told, Depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, or enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. That's when the sentence is passed. Not necessarily when one finds out. I believe we'll know our everlasting destiny within five minutes after we take our last breath on this earth. And that is why that I often say, and with great sincerity, that if every living person knew what every dying person learns within five minutes after death, everyone would become a Christian now. I want you to think about this tonight. I haven't given you my opinion. I haven't speculated. I've given you book, chapter, and verse for everything we've talked about. And it is something that ought to provoke us and make us think seriously about our souls. And I want to plead with you earnestly tonight. If you need to render obedience to the gospel, this is our last service of this meeting. Maybe somebody's last day on earth. Now is the time for you to summon the courage of your soul and to step out before a world that will criticize, scoff, and scorn, but make your choice and render obedience unto our Lord. While together we stand to sing.